Hello, this is Richie Wexler, um, founder of Vintage Analyst Archive and Vintage Analyst Archive Outsider Podcast. I'm going to keep this very simple. Um, it is it is one of the biggest honors of my life to have gotten to uh, speak with Jamal Shabazz and to present this to you um, in a time when I'm fearful uh, that they're trying to erase black history. It, brings, it warms my heart to know that they can't do that because of Jamal's dedication to documenting his community for the last 50, 40, 50 years. Um, and he will, you know, and, and, and his archive will be the reason this will never, never happen. Uh, his book, it's called Jamal Shabazz Albums, uh, 50 bucks. It's well worth it. I, I highly recommend it. It's so much there. And, and if you listen to this episode and you have that book, you'll really understand a lot more. Um, he has done so much. Uh, this book features selections from over a dozen of his albums. They're literally scans of his albums that he carried around and built up to, to really teach the future with. And this is all, this is pretty much, you know, from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. It, it's really an amazing, uh, it, I, I, we, we both talk about in this episode about how it's a history book. Um, Jamal is one of the most compassionate, spiritual, intelligent, authentic, kind, and passionate human beings I have ever met. Um, please get his book. Please get his past books. We have a bunch of links in, the, in this episode on how to get his um, Time Before Crack, how to get back in the days. I want to especially thank um, Daniel Power and Sophie Nunnally, who helped arrange this interview for, through Powerhouse Books. Again, please get those books and please support uh, the publisher to get those books. Another book I want to recommend that comes up in this interview is Leonard Freed's Black and White in America. It came out in the 60s. It's, it, it really changed Jamal's life in terms of photography. Um, I want to thank Kareem Brown. Uh, I met Kareem at, um, Jamal did a talk at the African American History Museum and Kareem's work was up there. Um, as Jamal is such a huge supporter of so many people and mentor, I only thought it was appropriate to bring a younger photographer in to this episode. So I want you to consider this like a show uh, or a concert, so, so to speak, and that uh, Kareem is the opener. So please listen to this episode. It's about 25 minutes, half hour, and please listen to um, the episode with Jamal at length. Um, and again, this is a dream come true. Um, your, your life will be changed once you learn about who this person is, what he's done, and just how amazing of a human being that Jamal is. It was one of the biggest pleasures to get in my life. So I present that to you. Uh, enjoy. You know, I, I noticed in terms of your content that like fatherhood is important. Um, you're, you know, like kind of, it seems like you're living the life that you're really, that you're really meant to. And the photography is an extension of a way to bring that all together yes. and support people. That's, yes. I think like that's a lot of, I mean, that's also, I think in general, a lot of documentary photographers. Yeah. But I particularly like that you also have a um, background in like arch archive, you know, archiving which yeah. again is another connection to like his work, but also just another piece of, you know, it took me a long time. I do a lot of document photography. I was, it didn't occur to me until about 10 years in that I also had an archive of my work. Mm. I just knew that I was happier doing photography because if I was drawing, I would never take time to document my stuff. Word. And, okay. and, and documentation was luckily inherent in photography because it, it's, it, you, you don't have to ever really document your work as it's already 
continually it's documented. It's continually documented. Yeah, it's doing this, it's doing this thing itself, right? And I also just want to get into like, you know, thinking about him and you. Um, he loves Philadelphia. I kind of want to see how Philadelphia as a character almost has really been the place for you to thrive and do your work. Mm, Um, If you want, I want to kind of, I want to kind of then kind of get into your show and how that came about and then just what it meant to you and just kind of where you're at and what you're doing, but very loose and formal. So let's start there. So um, what do you teach? Uh, So I teach uh, African-American history at Belmont Charter High School. Oh, cool. How's that going for you? Uh, I love it. I mean, the kids definitely, being that this is my first formal year of teaching, the kids have definitely taught me a lot. Uh, one of those things is being being present in the moment and uh, really just meeting them where they at, right? Uh, I feel like the process of learning does not begin, at least at the high school level, until there's some sort of relationship that's built, right? So in other words, I feel as though when, if I come in in a very condescending manner, right, or talking down upon my students, uh, the chances of them learning the content that I need to teach them is the probability of them learning that is probably going to be very low, right, versus... I, I want to interject, you could, I mean, I feel like that's the same exact process with photography. Yeah, so in the same way, right, so, you know, being that my work is in the North Philadelphia area or my work is concentrated in the North Philadelphia area, uh, I feel as though I can't come in with a can I can't be a man with just a camera in my hand, right? And just trying to expect these residents, these people to allow me to be a part of the process or be a part of the, the moment, right? I have to come in in a way that's that's I'm not intruding, but rather I'm asking for an invitation to be uh to be welcomed uh within the moments that are happening uh in North Philly. Uh I feel like that's the only way to keep right. All right. It's not just me taking and then leaving and then never coming back, but rather me intentionally prioritizing blackness, right? Uh I'm very intentional on prioritizing the black being, the black identity in all forms, right? Not just men, not just women, uh, and all the different type of subcategories that come with being black, right? Um, but yeah, I'm really intentional on just making sure that when anyone interacts with my work it's very clear that blackness is prioritized throughout. What are some of your most, I don't know, some of your most rewarding experiences, whether it's individually or whether it's about a community. And if again, if there's any stories in there, you're up to sharing, let me, let me, I'm curious about like, you know, where, where it's worked best, if you're willing to share some of that. Um, so it works best. So I guess, or how, even how it works best. How does it work best? So, uh, Typically, what I would do is if I'm walking around North Philly, right, uh, and typically the work that I have currently up at the African-American Museum, what that took was me literally introducing myself first and foremost, right? Not just stepping up in front of someone and photographing them, right? Um, So that meant me building a relationship and being okay that I wasn't probably going to get the photograph that I wanted in that moment, but something else may come back around, right? And being okay with just that moment. Tell me about that. Yeah. When you say something else might come around, tell me about that. So, you know, I, here's the thing, right? So what I mean by what I mean by it is it was something that attracted me. It, it's something that attracted me to that person, right? That perhaps I wanted to photograph. They were probably doing something and I was like, I want to photograph this. However, I'm not just going to take a photo from them. Uh, rather, I was going to ask. 
And in that moment, we probably got trapped in a conversation where the moment was gone now. The moment that I wanted to photograph was gone. And being okay with the fact that, all right, I didn't get the photograph as my job as a photographer, but rather as a um, as a person who loved Black folk, I was able to build a connection, right? Uh, that will last past that fleeting moment that I wanted to photograph. One of the things is just like, I guess a story I have is, uh, and it actually happens frequently. So this is a constant, this is like a frequent re uh, recurrence for me, right? So when I'm walking in North Philly, right? The people see me with my camera, right? And like, they're doing something like, I remember I seen this one kid, right? It was beautiful. I will never forget. I had a TLR at the time. Uh, I think it was a, like a Yashika mat, whatever. Anyway, um, so, you know, for those who don't know, Working TLRs can be very difficult sometimes with focusing. If you don't know the parallax, like you can get lost. Medium format, look, you look down, that's what you're talking about? Yes, yeah, that you look down into, right? So it was this kid in front of fire hydrant and the water was like just falling off of him. Like it looked like, like it, like the, he was glowing. It was a young black boy. It just looked peaceful, right? And I missed it. I missed it. I, I couldn't get the camera right, but it was something Obviously, it was something about that that I seen where I can call this call back to that. And this happened probably last June, right? And in that moment, I was like, wow, I'm just so grateful that Allah blessed me to see that moment, right? To see blackness once again beautified. I'm I'm impressed that you see that because some people could be like, Oh man, I missed that shot. But in some ways that story is 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 almost more powerful than if you had gotten the shot, the way you're telling. Yeah. Me. Yeah, right. And then it's this idea of like in that story, how I'm explaining how this boy looked, it also is like I'm I have the ability to to experience that moment one, two, but also combat the how whiteness or how how the idea of whiteness view black boys, right? As this very like uh demanding beings, uh hurtful beings, um, violent beings, rather than I seen this boy, this beauty. I seen beauty, right? Beauty being attached to a boy, one but more so beauty being attached to black boy and black boyhood, right? So it was just a beautiful thing that I was able to experience. Even in a way in which we understand, we as people understand different groups of people outside of whiteness, right? Not addressing them as minorities, rather than addressing them as another group of people, right? Uh, so uh, for me and my work, I try to pull my work to that, right? Not looking or not observing or documenting black folk as a minority, but just as a being, as people. It's so simple, but it's so powerful. Black folk aren't minorities. They are just another group of people. A word I learned in um, in black studies, because I am a graduate at CCP from the black program, and now I go to Temple now uh, for black studies. What is your like focus or main interest in black studies? What is What do you like to learn about? What is Why do you want to have this information? What does that do for you? Yeah, so one, I'm a blessed studies major because I simply just love one being black, but more so I love black folk, right? And everything that entails black folk. Uh, also though, it's me majoring in black studies is showing me the lies that have been perpetuated uh, to me since I was itty bitty, right? Since I was a little cub, right? It brings focus to my epistemology, right? Like how I, and epistemology, what is that? Epistemology. So epistemology means is how we understand, how we understand things through our experience, our education. Basically, if your epistemology is through this white lens or through this white context, 
you will you will always for me as a black person be critical of blackness right but when you change your epistemology and you understand you read you change the experiences you are you changing the education in which you learn about blackness then you have a greater appreciation for blackness then you understand blackness through through the black gaze and not the white gaze right because the white gaze will destroy you as a black I really like the, using that term black gaze because I haven't really heard that term used in that way and it's really interesting tell me more about the black gaze what do I mean by that like I was blown away by seeing that description I thought it was really smart the black gaze is a way in which I'm not I'm looking at black folk uh one like I said not through whiteness but more so I'm not looking at I'm not viewing black folk as an outsider but rather being a part of right so I'm not critical of their of what black folk are doing in their environments rather I'm paying attention to how they're interacting right um the black gaze for me is this idea of looking at black folk through or with this compassion for black folk right uh because I love black folk so much it allows my lens to be open wider it allows me to take in more rather than looking through a very narrow lens if you will you are not a byproduct of rather than you are you are that's what you are right uh I'm not focused on, my work does not focus on, and looking through the Black gaze, my work does not focus on looking at traumatic events and being like, that is the Black identity. Is it a part of? Yes. But what does the mundane, everyday life looks like for Black folk, right? Because those are the moments that are not being recorded, or those are the moments that are not being perpetuated through media. What is one or two, if you're willing to share a story, of those moments recent or old that just really like fucking blew your blew you up blew your mind oh man one moment is um so moving to my first home when i used to live on bancroft in susquehanna me and my family moved there me and my twin babies and my late wife uh we moved there i'm really sorry oh thank you um and i used to walk around and i used to come home i used to walk around my camera and at first I wasn't really getting much because people didn't like know me. I was a newcomer on that specific block. I was, I was from around the corner on Broad and York, but I was new to that block. And I walk around with Cameron and I'd be so frustrated. But I remember telling my wife like, yo, what we're doing around here is just beautiful. Like, like this is just everyday living, right? And it's not necessarily a, a photograph that I was able to take, but rather uh, a photograph that I was able to document, but rather it was just, I guess, a series of moments that made me realize like, damn, like, I love being black. Like, damn, I love community. Damn, I love everything that comes with blackness, right? Um, I think that was the big moment. Uh, in, in connection to that, previous to me picking up the camera, I had a black studies course and it blew my mind. I was infuriated, right? BCP, uh, black studies rather. Uh, when I was a graduate, undergraduate at CCP, uh, second year sophomore. I remember taking my first black studies course and I said, I, first of all, I was infuriated, right? I'm not gonna lie. I struggled with white folk in general. I could, I didn't want to be around them. Like it awakened me. And James Baldwin says it best. Uh, uh, a black man or woman in a constant state of consciousness leaves him or her in a constant state of rage, right? So I was very rageful. I, I didn't know what to do with this. I was being, I was being uh, given gems uh, and I just, it was just making me so mad. And before I had kids, I used to be on the front lines. I'm, I'm on the like, I'm, I'm protesting. I'm, I'm just talking about the, the BS of the United States, like, right. And then I had kids and then I had to find a way to express that same sort of uh, 
rebellious nature, but through a different one. Cause my kids need me at home, right? Like, so, and my wife needed me at home. So I picked up the camera and I said, I'm deliberately, I remember, I will never forget. I was telling my wife and I said, I will deliberately tell the true story of, of the black experience, not just this one-sided story. Can I chime in for a second? Please. And I want to I want to connect you with so this is going to be on um, Jamal Shabazz's episode. Where? And I know you uh, met him. I know you were you know you had your show and um, mm-hmm. as part of what he part of the event that was African American History Museum. Um, and I guess what I want to reflect and ask kind of ask you to reflect on is you know when you heard when you heard him talk. I mean he talks so eloquently about trauma and about community mm-hmm. about what he saw, but it's like. What do you do? Do you just see unjust and just be angry and fight all the time? And I don't mean that mm-hmm. in, t- in terms of the black community. I mean that as any, anybody. Mm-hmm. Or do you try to put something fucking beautiful in the world to then combat that story? Right. And I right. feel like he, to me, that's what he does really well. And, and it seems so. Is, so is that was did that you land on that process? Were you, you know, in terms of family, were you like, well, I need to fight this, but I want to do this positively with an effect. Where where did you land on that? If I can ask. I think two can exist in the same space. What do I mean by this? I think that everyone has their role to play, right? Uh, Specifically speaking to the liberation of Black people, right? And and when I say liberation, I mean just like us being outside of just like Eurocentrism and like how Eurocentrism understands us, right? Like just liberating ourselves from those ideologies. So I think that there can exist where you have those folks who are like fighting, like who's going back and forth with 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 uh, powers or the hierarchical uh, powers that exist, right? I, I think there needs to be folk who are fighting that battle, right? But I also think there are folk who need to be doing things like documenting, right? Documenting, all right, while this is happening, this brother over here, what he's going to contribute to the to the fight or to the to the fight of liberation is he's going to depict or doc. Not even depict, right? Because de- depict can fall under this idea of like changing things up to your perspective, rather documenting the uh, the authentic narrative or the authentic experience, right? That's the beautiful thing about photography. You can't change, like literally, all you're doing is hitting a button and you're documenting what's happening in front. Of you. Plus, you're by doing that, you're combating the white narrative of the bullshit. People who want to just keep turning the fucking narrative and tell you it's wrong, like, here's a fucking picture. And even sadly, even in our current society, that fucking picture doesn't doesn't even win an argument yeah. for half these fucking yeah. idiots. Excuse my and mind. it's like crazy, right? Because it's like, dude, like, this is it. Like, I'm not making this up. I'm not moving things over. Like, this is what it is. Like, you know what I mean? But that's people just blinded to the BS. Yeah. I think there's a certain point of people that are argumentative that just want to gaslight everybody else. And no matter what yeah. you fucking show, they're just going to be like, well, blah, 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 fuck you. Like, they're just trying to get you mad and try to get you confused. Well, also, too, they're insecure, like, they're insecure with the fact that, like, you're showing them something that's the contrary of their beliefs, their epistemology, right? So, like, that's very hard to, if you're not willing to break that, that's hard to, like, detach yourself from, right? Like, you get very uncomfortable. Like, that's, like, the same idea, like, like, think of epistemology as, like, your mom, right? When somebody... Like in the sense of, can you imagine somebody talking dirty about your mom? No, you're going, regardless of how much your mom get on your nerves, you're going to defend your mom. In the same way, people who believe in this Eurocentric epistemology, they're going to combat like that's what they love. That's what affirms who they are. So why would they break away from it? You know what I mean? 
so I want to ask you a question. I think is interesting. Is that you've had to yeah. even talking about your own history, learning history. You've had to, you know, being frustrated, being like, "Holy shit!" Like you're unlearning yeah. all this shit. How do you, as a teacher, help others unlearn that as well? And is and is that and is that even possible? Like how much of this shit's ingrained? That like I want to know about like how you've taken your own process of unlearning, which could honestly take a lot of people fucking. When it's so embedded in you, it could take you fucking 50, 60, 70 fucking years. Yeah. But how do yeah. you instill that in your students of this is all nonsense and you got to get, you know, don't believe it. How do you, what, what's that uh, process like? If it, were, if it works that way. Uh, so it, it works sometimes, right? I, so I have a group of students who like, I mean, like who's not receptive to it at all. Like, yeah, all right, whatever. Uh, and then I have a group, a large group of students who's like, damn, like, they're like, yo, like this is an awakening. Like, like I'm like, I don't want to say I'm woke, like I that I want to throw that in the trash, but rather like, like this is just like I feel like what I've get from my students or what I've gotten so far when I show them these things is like yo, like it's sad to me, right? Because they're angry, they're upset, like damn, like for real, like this how bad it was, but also I see like hope in their eyes in the sense of like damn, I'm giving Jim to fight these systems, right? That are like deliberately and intentionally fighting against me, right? So. I hope I answered that question. I don't know if I answered that question. It just seemed like you went through your own process from talking to you about unlearning all this shit and waking up to it. And then how do you, you know, how do you teach others in that system when the system's still kind of, when that might be tricky? Right. So what I would do is I will affirm that what you, so how I open up with is like, I affirm my students, like what you may believe or what you think is real may be false and it's okay for you to be angry or for you to deny it right so i create this 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 thing of comfort right the same thing i do with photography i make people comfortable with me in the same way i make my students comfortable with the content like hey listen this is something you're going to be wrestling with and it's okay that you're wrestling with it and it's okay if you may refute some of the things i show you because it's hard it's hard right but what i need you to do is i always let my students know i just need you to be willing to open have an open air have an open heart and be willing to learn. If you can do that, we're good. Because here's the thing, right? The Rich, the thing is, is that they may not, it may not do anything in the moment when I teach them. But if they're willing to learn, what I'm doing is I'm intentionally planting a seed. It may not be, it may not fully grow in that moment, but it may grow down the line. They may have an aha moment, right? So it's just being willing, me and stressing to my students, just be willing to learn. Be willing to have an open heart, right? And I'm a player, I'm a person where you can talk to and I won't shame you for you not knowing, right? How much truth, how much does the, the idea of truth fit into your teaching work and your photography, given what you're talking about now? I think it plays a, a huge part in my in my role as a photographer and as an educator because um if I'm not truthful, right? Uh if I'm not being authentic, uh, what am I doing it for? Right? Like what it so first of all, I guess the thing is like what is I'm always asking what is my intention, right? Even when I'm documenting, is my intention to take something? Uh is it to never come back? Or if I'm teaching something, is it to perpetuate what has already been taught? Or is it or is it my goal or is it my my duty, right? I'd rather my duty to 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 seek truth through photography and to teach it. Uh and truth is relative, right? Because someone could be told, I know it's crazy, right? So truth is relative, right? So truth is relative to the person who's taking it in, right? Because someone who believed that Christopher Columbus sailed overseas and landed here 
may think that's the truth. Like, that's their truth, right? That's what they believe, right? But it, it is a shame. It is a shame, right? But that's what they deem as the truth. And so I guess I don't even want to say truth, right? Because truth, I guess. But it's also a narrative. That's also, that's also, it's a narrative of whiteness, which is also tricky because yeah. all right. education is based on that bullshit, unfortunately. You know what I mean? Like, it's all based around that, right? So, and here's the thing, right? Like, me documenting Black folk and me, like, me um, teaching Black history or African-American history is not about, like, me making Blackness, like, the end all be all because that's a replication of whiteness and what Eurocentrism does, right? Like what it rather is is like this is what we were doing. I'm not saying that that wasn't that wasn't what white people were doing, Europeans were doing, but also this is what black people were doing during these times, right? So it's more so just not trying to belittle that, but more so just focusing on us, right? Part of the reason I do, I, you know, I paid is like vintage stuff. Part of the reason I do it, it's like we seem to have forgotten about the last fucking fifty years of history and people yeah. who fought this and had this knowledge and gave it to us. And we're still like pushing into this. We're still trying to like undo it and pretend it never fucking happened. I mean, bro, like in Florida, like they're banning, like it is against the law to teach AP African-American history. That's why we are in 2023. So literally what you're telling me is that I can't even get a job essentially in Florida as an educator. Cause I teach African-American history. And if I get caught teaching African Americans, so potentially I could go to, I could like be locked up, right, and taken to court. That's and it's also saying your your people, your history, yeah. yourself, you don't fucking matter. Fuck you. Like yes, Tony Morrison says something very beautiful, and I use this to guide my kind of to guide my work, uh, but just a constant thought. She says it was like a white man like asking her like you know oh why do you why do you write about black people, right? God actually said this, right? She says, well, why not? And then she goes on, she says, uh, the only reason why whiteness exists is because it has the comparison, it because I am the comparison of that, right? The only reason why white exists is because I'm black, right? Whiteness always compare themselves to something else rather than being their own being, right? And it's this idea like, yo, why is it that we can't live in a world where like you can be this, I can be that, and then we figure it out from there, right? But Eurocentricity, Eurocentrism tells us we gotta compare ourselves too. It makes it this comparative analysis. And it shouldn't be comparative. Part that's most fucked up about that to me is it's just about economics. Yeah. It's just about but, why do we have slaves? Because people didn't want to pay to fucking get the work done. Yeah. Why yeah. did then the thirteenth Amendment make it so that people are now in jail and also now slaves. Why, you know, um, it's a, it's frustrating when, even if I have this knowledge and I mean, it's, that people are just don't have their, don't know this history. And even if you told them again, they don't want to know. On that point, like redlining, right? Uh, so, so I'm, I have a body of work that I'm like flushing through and working through right now. Um, and I think I'm entitled uh, as displaced, right? Speaking to uh, gentrification in the North Philadelphia area, specifically, I call it um, modern colonization, but let's call it gentrification, right? Bro, it's a shame. Like when I walk in the neighbor, when I walk in my neighborhoods, right, and I see like homes that are $1.7 million next to these homes that are like 
hundred grand, maybe was bought probably like fifteen. It's like yo, like so many black folk are being displaced from the place they called home. That's what got me into the work in North Philadelphia, for real, for real, right? Is because in the next twenty to fifty years, North Philadelphia won't look like North Philadelphia no more, right? Unfortunately, and it's very important to document what the people that make up North Philly, the things that meant most to North Philly, right? Because it's very important for a, for a group of people to call back onto their history and see what they were, see what their ancestors were doing, right? That's how you eliminate being erased from history, and right. That's that's what my true practice of photography is embedded in. This need to document and archive what and how Black people are moving in the spaces that we love. Would you kind of talk? Would you kind of identify in some ways? as a historian activist in that sense? Ooh, that's a good question. I guess if you will, yeah, if you will, I, I don't, so funny thing is I don't, I don't label myself, I struggle with labeling myself as a photographer uh, because I feel like I'm doing it through photography, right? But I, what I'm really doing is I'm a, I am a historian and I'm a documenter. I'm just documenting, right? Uh, I just will happen to use, instead of using a pen, I'm using a camera, right? Um, so maybe an historian activist, maybe, I don't know. Are you are you pretty familiar with Jamal Shabazz's work? Yes. Is that a dumb yes. question to ask? So I mean he, you know, he talks about like that he's just the camera is just a uh, way to have a journal. So I wanna I wanna see for a second, I wanna just talk about if any influence he's had on you. Um yes. and just and, and also if you don't mind reflecting on his talk, I mean that fucking that blew me away. I have I've never been so humbled in my life. It just floored you, right? It floored you, right? He's like a preacher. He's a historian. He's a healer. <laughs> He's, yeah. you know, it's it, photography in the same way you're talking about is kind of incidental to him. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I wanted to see if you, if you feel like talking about, you know, what his work's done to you. Yeah, or, I got I mean, you. I got you. And also, I don't know how you, I don't know how you got into photography or, what oh, has inspired yeah. you? So if you want to, I, I like to give you like 10 minutes to just dig in there and shit and leave you alone and not interrupt. Let's talk about how I got into photography first. So I I got into, so when people ask me, when did you get into it? Or how did you get into it? So I tell people when I was like in high school, I I had a, I had a phone. So I used to take pictures on my phone, right? And, but I didn't have the money nor the finances to get a camera. And fortunately, because of, COVID, uh, what came out of that, the blessing that came out of it is during like when people were getting PUA, I qualified for PUA and I was able to get a camera with, with that money. And um, that was probably like, what now, three years ago? Yeah, three years ago. Uh, and from that moment, I ran with it. Um, and I guess I remember from that point, on, I remember when me and my wife got our first home in North Philly on Bancroft in Susquehanna. Bro, I was buying so many books. My wife was, I was driving my wife crazy. Like we had a library of photography books and like, I, and like, I just, from there, like I started hearing about different photographers. I was like, I knew about Gordon Parks, knew the name, didn't know what he did. Then I became a part of that community. And then I started to find out, oh, Gordon Parks, what, this is what he was creating this. Then that led me to like, uh, um, Andre Wagner, what he was doing in New York. And I'm like, yo, this brother was doing, and then coming full circle is crazy. I found out about Andre Wagner, then I found out about Jamel Shabazz. So, and, and I think it was because of, no, and Devin Allen, excuse me, Devin Allen in Baltimore as well. 
Devin Allen. Uh, was he the Buc- guy that was part of that documentary? Was he yes. mentioned? Okay. Yes, yes, yes. A choice. He was a part of the documentary, A Choice of a Weapon. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, so, so Devin Allen is a Baltimore documentarian. Uh, I don't mean to pitch titles on his brother, but he's a photographer who documents the Baltimore experience, the Black Baltimore experience, uh, from what I've gotten from his work. But anyway, so I'm seeing all these different brothers, and then I see Jamal Shabazz. And I remember, I remember talking to my old head. Now, like, he's like a beloved. He was my professor. Then he became, like, my old head. Then he became, like, a big brother of mine. So, like, anyway, we talking about it. I'm like, yo, bro, this cat, Jamel Shabazz, like, his work just is beautiful. I don't know what it is. It's, like, this feeling that I get when, like, I look at his photographs. And it's like, yo, like, the people feel comfortable. How do I do that, right? Like, I want people to feel comfortable, right? It's, and my old head was explaining, he was like, you know, I feel like your work is more similar to Jamel Shabazz than Andre Wagner. And not, once again, a comparative analysis thing, but more so Jamel Shabazz has this thing where he's articulating his work through this idea of companionship. Like, people are comfortable with this man, is is okay with him, with him interacting with him. I mean, are okay with interacting they're okay with him interacting with them and more so take it a step further. They're okay with him documenting them. Right. And that's what I try to pull from Jamel Shabazz is this idea of, I want people, I don't want to be on a voyage, if you will. Cause I, I, I couple voyaging with like, what do you mean by voyaging? Just so I can clarify. Yeah. yeah. So a voyage. So what I, how I see it as a voyage, a voyage is like a journey. Right. Uh, of, and, but, Specifically, I think it's this journey of of traveling through spaces that are unfamiliar to you. Whereas Jamel Shabazz is not a voyager. He's more so a a part of the community. He's a community member. That's what his work tells me, right? I don't want to, and this is no diss to those who, those photographers or documentarians who were doing that voyage work, if you will. Uh, but it's just something about his work that just sung to me. It just it made me feel at home. Where back in the days, so his book back, his publication back in the days, the work was so good. I wanted to be in that time era. Like I wanted to be there. Like I was mad and upset that I wasn't in that moment, right? Uh, and that says something about your ability to document the authenticity of the moment, right? Uh, it really says something about your work. Um, and like from that point, so so bringing it full circle. When he comes to the African-American Museum uh, to give his lecture uh, titled, uh, what was it, uh, All About Love or, no, Love is the Message. Title, uh, when he gave his lecture, Love is the Message, two weeks ago at the African-American Museum, in the same space where my photographs are being exhibited currently right now, it was like, huh? Like, wait, what is happening? And then to hear from folks who work at the African-American Museum that this brother was, he was reading about me before I even, I didn't even know this man, this man doesn't follow me. He was on my website, like looking at my work. And this is, I'm not saying this in a boastful way, but to meet a legend, right? To meet a man who literally your, his books are in your library and for him to come back full circle and say, I see what you're doing was so damn reaffirming feel like the universe put you there i don't think the universe put me where i think a lot i think god put me there yeah i think i and i stressed this on my instagram page i said god put me right where i need to be and uh 
and put the people who needed to be there there, right? And it was just mind blowing. If I can tell the story, I come in, so I get a message, I get a DM from one of the folks at uh, Morgan, her name is Morgan, beautiful soul, great spirit. She works at the, um, she works at the African American Museum. So she DMs me and say, hey, Jamel Shabazz is here and he's looking at your work right now and he's raving about it. So I'm like, what? And mind you, this is the crazy part. Ironically enough, or coincidentally enough, I'm literally heading to New York as I'm getting the DM, right? So she tells me, she says, I, uh, she said, you can stop by, he'll be here until four. So I'm in the car with my brother, because I was going to New York with my brother. I'm like, dude, he's like, yo, you want to stop? I was like, yeah, like, bro, I got to stop. Like, I got to stop and go here and put a, put a face to a name. So we get to the African-American Museum. Literally, this is right before we are still continuing our path to get to New York. Like, we literally, she just DM'd me as we're passing, almost passing the exit to get to the African-American Museum. I mean, I'm telling you, bro, it was, it was divine. This moment was divine. So I get there, and um, I walk in. I'm looking for him. So he comes up. Uh, he comes up from looking at my exhibition. He's meeting and greeting people, whatever. So I wait until he gets done talking to the elders. You know what I mean? I come from this practice of let the elders speak and you just wait turn, you know what I mean? So I'm waiting there. So he looks at me and say, hey, brother, uh, what's your name? And I say, I'm Kareem Brown. He says, brother, you are Kareem Brown? And like how he just like affirmed the crap out of me. He was just like, dude, like I've been reading about you. Like your work is so beautiful. Like what, it, like, just giving me like, and I was so grateful, right? Uh, I, I, I was just so, so grateful for the, for the blessing. And I'm oh God, I was just so grateful. And we're still talking, um, you know what I mean? And I was like, can I get a picture with you? He's like, yeah, get a picture. Of course, brother. So we take a picture or excuse me, we get photographed. Uh, uh, I, I'll go back a little bit that later, but anyway, so I, we are photographed and now we're sitting there uh, and he's like, where are you going? Like, you're staying for my lecture? I'm like, no, I got to actually go to New York. I actually wanted to go see Kwame uh, Brad. What's his name? Brad with, uh, he had an exhibition up right now in New York. And that was the last day. He's like, brother, New York is here. I brought the heavy hitters here. Like, hey, I'm like, no, I, I, I kind of want to go see this. He's like, all right, listen, I ain't going to force you. But he's like, I think what I'm going to teach, what I'm teaching in this lecture today, I think it could be a benefit for you. So we part ways. He's like, Said, you know, I'm I 100% support you. Boom, boom, boom. So I say, all right, take care. We gave some lamps. As I'm walking out, he says, dude, he's like, hold on, bro. He said, hold on, I gotta take a photo of you. I can, I just can't let famous people uh walk away and not take a photograph of them. I said, bro, you're doing like, he was like just like feeding my spirit. He was just like he was just empowering me, and I loved every second of it. So boom, I get it back in the car. I'm heading to New York. So I have this moment, and I say, uh. I'm talking to my brother, my older brother. He like, I'm like, bro, I feel like he was like slightly trying to get me to stay. Uh, he didn't want to forcefully do it, but I think he was implying that maybe you should stay. And he's like, bro, I was talking to my brother. I'm like, bro, I may not get this opportunity again. New York always going to be there. New York is going to be in New York for a minute. We're good. But this moment, this may not come back around. So I say chalk it. I chalk New York. I come back around to the African-American Museum. And from that point on, the lecture was just, I sat in his lecture and one of the defining moments of the lecture, right? It was amazing. So we're talking. So he's giving the lectures like an hour and a half and he's, he's about to close in. And I had this question. So I raised my hand and he looks to see who asked the question. And he says like, 
Kareem? He said, what you doing here? And it was just like, dude, like, he's like, come on up in the middle of his lecture, right? And I'm just like, dude, like, what? Like, this is this is amazing. I, I couldn't have asked for a better moment. Uh, and I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. I'm so happy you share. I mean, you can keep sharing, but I'm so happy you shared that because I've never met anybody or learned about anybody that I felt was as generous and kind and giving as that man. My whole thing about kindness, people can be kind to their family. People can be kind to their friends. People who are kind to strangers are, are really, to me, are the ones that are, are really generously kind because they're not going to get anything. Right. Like and I was just so grateful and so blessed to, you know, and it, and it, and it, te- it taught me something as I continue on through my journey. I don't know how long photography is going to be in my, uh, in my, uh, I guess, I don't know what the word to say, but I don't know how long photography will be with me. Uh, when God is thing, I'm done, then I'll be done. But what I will do is what it taught me in that interaction with him is, is remain humble, regardless of what may come your way. Remain humble and remain generous and remain uh, remain grounded. Right. Uh, I feel like that's the biggest thing with a lot of artists is that they lose that foundation of being grounded and then they're gone. They're not who the people love. Right. They're not. They turn into something else. Uh, it reminds me of the thing of uh, the Greek mythology, uh, Icarus. Right. People fueled Icarus so much, gave him his wings and he rose too high. The sun burnt him and he died. Right. And you don't want to be Icarus. You never want to be Icarus. away I, I only had like two lenses when i started it was a 50 and an 80 but when i your book your work made me buy a 23 <laughs> because i was like there's so much more information that tells the story that i'm missing wow well well i really appreciate that i was looking at your portraits and uh i mind how you interact with people on the street you know so it, it was a joy to look at your practice of, of engagement. And, and a lot of people can't do that. You know what I mean? They, they do pictures on the slide, but I see that in a lot of your work, you confront people and you get them to open up. And, uh, and I, I like that. That's amazing. Thank you so much. That's a, that's a true honor. Um, I, I did such a deep dive in your, in your stuff that I, if I could have kept going, I would have written, I could have written your, a biography. <laughs> I had to, st- I actually had to like stop. Cause I'm like, <laughs> I, I've never spent, it, it's so it's, it's so interesting to me that your how you do things and how you think about things and you know your influences. I think a lot of people get very stuck with photography of like influences having to be photog- other photographers. But you know you start talking about how you know what's going on, uh, Marvin Gaye's album. How how influential that was. Like I think the best artists are ones that take everything. And, you know, and something you would never think would influence your work could be a song. You can translate that in a way, but I think is, is a really unique gift. I think you and I think similar about consent and in terms of, you know, the approach of a photograph of a photograph. And, well, you know, it took me a little while to understand that also was not only taking the photo, but then there's consent in, in sharing it. Right, right. And that, that's important to me in terms of consent. And I speak about that quite often. Because where I come from in Brooklyn, you just couldn't go and just take a person's picture without their permission. You just can't do that. You know, for me, my approach was to be respectful, to to state my intentions. I always had a business card on me. I carried a portfolio with me. I stated my intentions. I started off first with my friends. So in, in the early 1970s, when I first started photography, 
I photographed my peers, people I went to junior high school with. So it was easy to get their consent because I knew them. And then with that work, I built up portfolios. So as I advanced in the craft, mainly when I came home from the military, now I'm coming back to America and I have this love for photography and interacting with people and I needed to engage them. So what started off good for me was I, I returned back to both my junior high school and high school. And a lot of the kids that went there were uh, the, the, the little brothers and sisters of my friends. So they knew me. So I was able to confront them, get their photographs, put them in portfolios. And matter of fact, I gave them the photographs in return. One hour photo of the ones I developed. So I developed a relationship and then the word spread that I was sincere in my intentions. And then once I had a nice portfolio, I would approach people. I would explain to them why I want to photograph you. You know, but, but what, what was more important for me was in the early days was engagement. You know, I wanted to know what was going on. Just like Marvin Gaye, when I speak about how that music influenced me, what's going on, what's happening, brother, I just came back from the States. I was away in the military for three years. I'm coming back to a new experience, and I wanted to find out what was happening. Sadly, a lot of young men were being killed at the hands of other young men, and I wanted answers. So I wanted to engage people first to find out what was going on, and then later on, the photograph became evidence of the conversation. So I would engage you first, state my intentions, let you know, I just came home from the military. There's a lot of killing going on out here. What's, what's been happening since I've been gone? So I developed relationships with people. So in, in them hearing me speak, they started a lot of a lot of those are photographed. They looked at me as like a big brother. So they opened up to me. So it was engagement first. And a lot of people don't realize that, especially the early 80s. Some of my most important work, you know, was based off building those relationships first. It wasn't like I just approached you and got an image and kept it moving. I wanted you to be very clear on who I was and the fact that I stated that this work is gonna mean something years from now. And I don't have any negative intention because I wanna give you a copy of the photograph. Here's my business card. If you call me, I'll give you a copy, which I did. And that strengthened those relationships with a lot of the strangers. But it was always about engagement. My work is very different now because I use a wide angle lens. I do more documentary work. I'm not, people don't want their photographs today. Whatever reason back in the early eighties, there weren't a lot of photographers around. So a lot of people felt honored that someone would even see the beauty in them and want to photograph them. Back in the days, if you saw someone in camera, in, in most cases, that person was a tourist. But you didn't see photographers in the community that were just photographing youth culture like I was. So that gave me an end. One thing I've learned about photographers is most of the ones, most of them are shy. I know you talked about like being, being when you're 17, you had a bit of maybe a speech impediment. You, you, was, were you shy or were you just nervous or? I think that it, it it wasn't being shy. I think that whatever reason I had I had a difficulty pronouncing certain words and nobody knew it. So it wasn't like it was a heavy stuttering problem. I would struggle on words maybe in my early teens and and I say maybe 14, 15, 16. And then once I embraced photography, it just kind of like faded away. I think like we have different roles, and I think with documentary photography, like when I and when I I went through a lot of your stuff, and I was like. Here's, I want to offer some roles that I that you've talked about having or I've seen you having or thought you have. Um, you know, teacher, I mean, uh, preacher, collector, historian, I mean, lifesaver, mentor, healer, peacemaker, photographer. From the from what I learned about your work, what I learned about the way you are, you know, Arlene, of other document photographers, you can't go into a community and embed yourself and then not support it. it it's a journey. And I, as I often say that, you know, the camera was a compass that guided me to certain places and people I felt it was meant for the meet, me to meet on this path of life. So everyone I photographed, I felt we were supposed to meet. Again, the photograph became evidence of our, of our conversation and became a part of my visual diary because I never wanted to be without memory. 
you know, because one thing when I was in Germany, um, I used to just think about coming back to America and, and, and just having memories. But now I'm in a situation where I'm, I might be on guard duty for, for eight hours and I'm out there all night thinking. And I was just recapping things in my mind, revisiting different situations in my mind from the trains, the buses, the streets and people. So I promised myself when I returned back to the States, I would never be without memory. One of the things that my father told me that was very helpful, and I say, stated in all my interviews, is that he told me, carry your camera everywhere you go. So my camera was with me all the time. Everybody I met, I felt that I, I met you for a reason. I don't know why. Very interesting now, because that 40 years ago, I would say to him, I don't know why we met on this path of life. It may not make sense, but it makes sense later. Sure enough, today, in 2022, I'm reconnecting with people I photographed 30, 40 years ago. And the stories they are telling me, and the friendships that we have we, we we have created based off a frozen moment in time, I might have something subconsciously told me to freeze this moment, and now forty years later, I have a friendship with this person, and I might have met you briefly, less than five minutes, and now through showing that photograph on social media, I reconnected with you, and you explained to me what is going on. What's so incredible about my work today is the fact that a lot of the children or people I photographed are reaching out to me saying. That's my father. I never met him. He died uh, when I was still in my mother's womb. You have the only photograph of him. Recently, an elderly woman reached out to me and said, and I put it on my Instagram feed, that you, my grandson reached out to you. You have a picture of him and his mother. And right after, uh, you know, what pained him was that she said, that's my grandson and my, and my daughter. And she got murdered uh, a few years ago. And that, and that helped me to understand why I took this photograph. Now I have it, it was a basic snapshot. It was nothing special about it. I didn't know her or him, but something led me to, the, to these two individuals and I photographed them, put it away. I didn't really pay, I didn't pay the picture no mind. Just last year I posted it and then the young boy reached out to me, who's a young man now, and he explained the picture to me. He, he wanted to know where did I get the picture from? I said, let me explain something first because he was a little hostile. I said, you, as you as you study the photograph, you can see that your mother agreed to the photograph. She's looking in the camera. She's smiling. She's embracing you. He said, well, let me let me explain to you the history of this picture. You know, I was driving my car. The police pulled me over, I think, in the 1990s for a minor traffic violation. They took me to the precinct. I called my mother to come get the car. She came and got the car, returned back to the neighborhood, and her ex-boyfriend murdered her. So that's one of the few pictures that he has of his mother, and he's never seen it before. And what's special about the photograph, she's holding him tight. And I had two copies of it. And then he told his grandmother about the picture, and she called, she reached out to me not too long ago, saying to me that she wants to talk to me. And she went on to tell me what that picture means to her, and it opened up all these conversations. So my point is, when I was making those images many years ago, I didn't quite understand. The I knew they were part of my visual diary to, 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 to document everybody I met in my life. But now, practically every photograph I took has meaning to somebody. It could be a photograph of an old graffiti train and somebody write me and say, yo, you got a picture of my cousin and my brother on the train. Two graffiti tags in the background of a photograph. And now I couldn't find out that both those people have died. So I never knew what I was doing at that point, but I, whatever reason, something subconsciously drew me to all those situations. And now after all these years, due to social media, I'm able to get, gain greater understanding on all of what I've done. And again, friendships have been established based on pictures I took 40 years ago. I would have never imagined that when I was doing it. And I think from just learning about you, it seems like you understand fully that a photograph is a memory. And in that photograph, there's, there's time, you know, 
there's times that I've looked at photographs and I've wondered if the memory is not real or it's based on the photograph or, or forever, if it actually happened. I think that just speaks to the power of images being memories. One question I have for you in terms of the way you grew up and having all these photo albums, did you, do you feel like you ever had a choice not to be a photographer? It's, it's, it's hard to say, you know, luckily, you know, my father fit, set the foundation for me because not only did he have the photography books, but he had photo albums and then all of my uncles had photo albums too. And all of my family had photo albums. So I didn't quite look at it as wanting to be a photographer, but I understood the importance on having family history and important in, in, in having photographs. You know, so, you know, it wasn't clear to me until I came home from the military that I wanted to be a photographer. But early on, I didn't really know. I wanted to be a musician. I played the bass. I wanted to be a musician at that time. And I wanted to be a DJ and all that. But photography was my higher calling because I realized that the camera is like a microphone where I could use that to engage people, especially during the times in which I was doing it because we had the two epidemics, the crack epidemic and the AIDS epidemic. So I needed to be out there. And then when I became a correction officer, forget it, because now the camera became a photographer, became therapy for me to help me deal with that violent atmosphere. So early on, I didn't quite know what I wanted to be. I was trying to figure it out. But I was surrounded by old photos all the time between my father's work. And every time I visit family, the photo albums were center stage on that coffee table. So I always was drawn to them because I knew through those photo albums, there was a history of the family. You know, going back, I was able now to further understand my uncle who served in World War II because I'm looking at the photo albums now. And I'm looking at the back of the picture that says Burma. So it helped me to better understand who my family was. I might look at them in real time in the 1970s, but now I'm looking at photographs from Pearl Harbor in 1944. And I'm saying, wow, he served in the military. So it, it, it allowed me to, to, to better understand who my family was. Back then, a lot of the men served. So every album, it seemed like back in the 1940s and 50s, the camera was like standard gear that a lot of military people had, equivalent to the iPhone of today because they were traveling outside their states. So all of my uncles came back with photographs. So I was fascinated with seeing them in uniforms and want to know more of who they were. So I, I realized early on the value of the family photo album. Again, they stood center stage on the coffee table. You know what I mean? It was those albums that, that, to me, were a gateway into my past. So I wanted to build my own legacy up at the same time, too. I knew that it would be slightly different, but at the same time, I'm going to photograph my friends like my uncles and aunts photograph their friends and have my own legacy. So for me, in essence, it was about building my own uh, legacy through, through through my journey as a photographer. You explained people's poses. There's something about the five percent nation had a certain stance, and I think it, it's it makes me really think a lot about how much the military must have influenced what you do in the world because it's it seems like the way you shoot your subjects is kind of how people take pictures of kings or soldiers. Do do you see that in there? That's a good point that you made because one of the things that I picked up in my photography, my father's photographs as a Navy photographer, I remember those those albums that he had. They were called tour books from his travel throughout the Mediterranean, and a lot of those military personnel he wrecked, they were well posed, you know. So I picked up on that subconsciously early on. The power of the pose, you know, the tall people in the background, the short people in the front, certain people crouch down because he shot the different squadrons on the ship. That was a part of his responsibility. So early on, it's through those Navy photographs that I understood the power of posing, you know, because a lot of times I would I would approach people, a group of people, and they would allow me to photograph them, but they didn't know what to do. So now I had to come up with an idea on how to position them to get the images and capture the discipline. So, you know, a lot of it, you know, it, it was my direction. It was a part of the creative process to pose people. And yes, the military played a major role in it because I wanted people to be upright, you know, chest out, stomach in, sense of pride. And because when we took photographs in the, in the military, it was in the same fashion. So I wanted to photograph people in the street 
similar. I wanted to capture the dignity. So rather than slouching and have your hands in your pocket, I would help give them certain guidance in, in certain cases. And in others, it was a natural thing. Are there any stories you remember, you think about where, you know, it was the opposite, where you came up with someone and they just like directed you and blew you away? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I remember, I, I remember a, a few times that, um, cause I didn't have time to think about what I was going to say. Cause I remember being downtown Brooklyn one day and, a, and an army of these young guys were, were coming down the block and I caught them too, too, too soon because I didn't have an opportunity to get my thought process together. I'm looking at all these guys with jewelry, and these were major heavy hitters in the neighborhood, and I didn't know them. And I'm seeing them in a crowded district. And normally, when I see somebody from afar, I have a few seconds to think about my approach. But with them, it's like I was looking in one way, looking to my right, and I happened to look to my left, and they was coming. And I said to them, can I take a picture? And then they said, look, let me get the fuck out of here. And I realized that happened because I needed a little bit more time to just wait and maybe follow them for a moment and then find out who was the person I could approach. Cause I speak about approaching that person who looks like he's in charge. It's kind of like important. You see that person who's the leader because if he says it's okay, they're gonna agree. And this would have been one of my most iconic photographs because everyone in that photograph was major. But I just didn't have an opportunity to think about it. Cause in most cases I have to, I have, I have, to have the person see what it is I'm trying to do. So if I sit back and say, excuse me, with all due respect, man, when I look at you guys, y'all look like some serious generals. This picture is going to mean a whole lot. Here's my business card. And once they maybe they heard me explain it, they might have been open. In most cases, it was like that. But that was one case where they just, dis they just dissed me and kept it moving. And then later on, I would reconnect with them and they would give it to me. But that time, which would have been an iconic photograph, because was a, it was a lot of them, they just told me no because... I didn't have time to get my story together. In many cases, I have to have a story to explain to them what it is I'm trying to do so they can see it, so they can hear, hear me out, or maybe look at my album. Because a lot of times if I see a group like that, I say, okay, these guys are from Fort Greene. Let me go to my portfolio and get one of the top guys in Fort Greene. So as I approach them, I show them a picture of somebody they know. And now all of a sudden, oh, that's my man. Well, that's my cousin. And now all of a sudden, these guys open up and they want to see more. And that's how I got a lot of guys, by, by, by checking out the group, studying them first, but I needed time. I might shadow you for a few minutes to find the right background, because I might see you guys walking. The timing name, name may not be right, but if I can anticipate that you guys are going to go to this corner store, I'll meet you at the corner store where I could be posted up. And in some cases, if I'm there with my camera out, they might even say to me, oh, picture man, take my picture. And so it's a strategy, but that moment, it wasn't, a good, it wasn't good timing. And it's like I shot too fast. You know, it's like in the, in the ambush, in the military, it's, a, it's an ambush. And I fired without waiting a few extra minutes. I needed to wait a little bit more and I would have got it. So it's not a lot of times in which it happened. And then some people would tell me respectfully that I don't want my picture taken. I'm not at my best. But in most cases, they told me that when people told me no. That comes from chess for you in some ways. Totally. Chess is the key. Yeah, it, it, It's observation, it's sacrifice, and it's just having a clear objective on how you're going to approach this person. As you know, I speak about the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. So that's very instrumental in me approaching and gaining the confidence of people. And over time, I, I would be very effective in doing it. Very rare that a person turn me down. So let me ask you a question. Because so much of your work seems rooted in mentoring and helping, are you... Are there people you're picking to take a photo of, not necessarily because you think they're interesting to look at, more because you want to help them? 
It's a, it's a combination of a lot of things. You know, first is that I want to understand why we met. I need help because there's a lot of problems going on in the community. There's a lot of violence going on out here. So in a sense, I need your help to help me in some of this violence. And if I can help you in some form or fashion, I'm here to help you because I might meet a young person like when I was young and I needed guidance because I realized through my own personal struggle coming of age that a lot of young people were going through difficult times. So I might approach you and I might approach you at a point in your life where you're going through a crossroads and I'm able to see that within you. So a lot with, with a lot of the young guys I was seeing back in the streets, especially during the crack epidemic, crack was that draw. So I became a correction officer right around the time that crack hit. And a lot of young men were gravitating was that lifestyle. I'm looking at the effects of it. I'm looking at people who are incarcerated right now. So I wanted young people to know where I worked at. You know, I worked on Rikers Island. You got to be mindful of the traps that are out there that could bring you in that system. So I wanted them to know that in, in, in a lot of cases, what I did for a living to help kind of like guide them. And I would tell a lot of young people that the only way to go to jail is as a correction officer. So do consider a, a city job to get foundation. And I encourage a number of people to take city positions. At, you know, there was a certain time when young people had a really difficult crossroads and I encouraged someone to go into the military. There was no war going on. And I said, you might want to consider the military as a foundation. So what I was trying to do is save a lot of young men, because like I said, a lot of people in my community were dying prematurely due to nonsense. And I was trying to offer whatever I could. I often carried my chessboard. And if the moment, if the opportunity presented itself with young people, I said, yeah, this, this is a game of life. It's very important that you learn this game, but it will help navigate you through life itself, both the physical game, but the principles of the game. So I was just trying to be a light and big brother. And, I, and again, I felt that we met on a reason for, for the path for a reason and friendships was established behind it. So it was a give or take because I learned a lot from the people which I was photographing. I wasn't like this great teacher. I learned from a lot of these young guys who might have been, been, been younger than me, they were able to impart things to me that helped me in the past. Because again, I felt that we met for a reason. So it was an exchange. I didn't want to feel overbearing like I'm coming to lecture to you. It was a combination of things. You know, I had a problem with guys smoking cigarettes because my father and my family were heavy cigarette smokers. So I used to encourage people that, yo, 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 man, you might want to consider, you know, getting off that cigarette. That stuff is really bad for your health. So I was trying to guide them and actually help a whole lot of young men and women stop smoking because I saw the damage they had in my community. So a lot of what I was doing was based off love and they felt that for me. That's why they looked at me as a brother, a big brother. Even I was referred to as an uncle because I came at them as an older person had a genuine concern with the upliftment. And, and not that many young people were doing it at that time in a manner in which I did it sincerely because I would leave Rikers Island and go right to the streets. I would leave that hellhole. I would leave Rikers Island and go right into the streets looking for people. Because now I'm looking at young men that are doing 25 to life and it, and it used to tear me up inside. So I needed to, 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 as I say, sound the alarm to warn them because so many were falling victim to that culture. And I will, I would see some guys that I would see on the street one day and then I go to work the next day, they locked up. So I was trying to enact intervention to try to prevent that because that, like I said, that draw was so strong in so many of them. Question I have in terms of your camera, even chess or mentoring, was it the same process you would use in the prison versus out in the world? Oh, no, no doubt about it. It was a little bit different in the jail, you know, because now I'm in a situation for eight to 16 hours a day dealing with about 60 inmates, 60 young detainees. So I had to have a, a, a serious strategy. Reading was one of the most important strategies for me. You know, bringing in the newspaper to encourage young men to read, to think. Any extra books I had to encourage them to read and elevate themselves. Then I would bring in my photo albums as time went on and I would show them my images that will stimulate them and bring them around me. 
and and they would see a lot of pe people in the photographs. Some of them, a lot of them, I knew from the streets, so they, I would bring them their photograph. They said, you know, you know, they would see me and call me, and and I about taking the picture not too long, so I would give it to them, and that meant a lot to them. So once I was able to build that trust, then I started to mentor a few guys, you know, because they needed help because you're in a really difficult situation right now, you know what I mean? And, and, and as as an officer. I can help give you guidance to help you. I can get you a job. I can, you know, and that was one of my things to get you out of that housing and get you a job at a barbershop, the bakery, so you don't have to deal with this negativity. You don't have to engage in stealing because now you're making money. And then I would put guys under the wing and try to guide them and understand what they were going through and help them understand that, you know, what you're dealing with is like a 15 round fight. You might have lost the first five rounds, but the fight's not over. So you in here, you can make yourself better. You know what I mean? And I need you to help me make things better rather than robbing these other guys and humiliating humil 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 these other individuals. Why not try to guide them? So I tried to encourage young men because jail could really make you a bad person. It, you know, you know, there's a lot of innocent people incarcerated as well. And I let people know that you can make a difference when you're in it. It's not over. Even if you're guilty, think about atonement. We all got to atone. And I'm no better than you. You know what I mean? I could easily have been in here as well. But think about atonement, transforming your life, and becoming a better person. So while you're incarcerated, go to school, educate yourself, and try to become a better person. For example, I had uh, two subway pushers. Because I worked in the site ward for, for a few years, too. I spent about 10 years working with the mentally insane. They were outcasts of society. And I didn't like the way they were being treated. You know, and, and I worked when I worked in the courts, they would just bring all of the mentally ill inmates together and put them in one cell. And despite the fact that this one was paranoid schizophrenic, this one had the Tourette syndrome, this one just didn't speak English. I didn't like that. You know what I mean? It was something about that really bothered me. But I remember the two subway pushers and that crime really bothered me because first of all, before I met the, the, the young man that did the crime, I read about it and saw it in the news. How he just saw a woman and just pushed her on the train for no reason. He was hearing voices. And, you know, when I heard he was coming, you know, I had certain feelings towards him and it was another one like that. And when they both came, you know, one was clearly severely mentally ill. And then all of a sudden, all my judgments passed and I realized he's mentally ill. And the other one, and he was mentally ill as well. Well, he's very respectful towards me. And, it, and he was an artist and it kind of like, it, it made me understand mental illness. And, and I started to just change a lot of it. But in the beginning, it was difficult because you're dealing in, 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 a, in a jail situation and you're dealing a lot of violence. And it's one thing not to judge a person, but then it's another thing when you see people act in a certain way, you know what I mean? And now you have, you're, you're basing your feelings on what you're seeing. So it, it, it's very difficult. It has its, it has its challenges. And even uh, my documentation of prostitution was very interesting because, you know, there was a time which I judged pimps and I had my personal feelings of to why I did. And then when I started to meet, I realized I had to be objective in my approaching people on the street. And that was the key to my success. Putting my personal feelings to the side and realizing that regardless of who you are, we met on this life for a reason. I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to learn from you. You know, and because uh, you spoke about the person with the Hitler mustache. I remember the photo rep I didn't take and I wrote about it in a book. And I remember seeing a, a, a skinhead in, in uh, Louisiana, in New Orleans. And he had the SWAT sticker, uh, tattooed on his forehead and now we're we're crossing paths with each other and i could tell this person is homeless and rather than take his photograph i just assumed that i wouldn't get it but i knew that i probably could have got it once i approached him but i didn't let i didn't get it because i had my own personal feelings getting away 
and I let that image go. Where I couldn't engage them and got the photograph and even got involved in a conversation with him. So, you know, at this stage in my life, I don't pass judgment on no, no one. I try to uh, accept everybody for who they are. Even my new experiences are very interesting, going to Germany and dealing with the grandchildren of former German soldiers. You know, I would have never in my life that I would be in the presence of, of these men because, you know, when I when I travel, you know, I have a, I have a, a, an understanding of history. So now, you know, I started something at one of my shows, you know, when Pat Tashin gave me the exhibition over there. And I was very curious to ask some of the young German people who came out to support me about their grandfathers in the war. And I was amazed that all of them had grandfathers that served in World War II. Most of them didn't come back. And it was a very interesting conversation. But I'm not there to judge. I'm here to learn. And, and to me, you know, it, it was it was a very deep experience to engage people like that. You know, and, and I've always been that way. Even when I was in the Army, you know, the Klan was there. And I think a lot comes from the fact that I did not engage the Klan when I was in the Army. You know, I didn't know how to engage them. I, I engaged them, if anything, with, with, with reggae music that attacked them rather than sit down to understand what made you decide to, to become a member of the Klan. You know, and I, I'm, I'm thinking more of a journalist right now where I have to be objective and I'm here to learn. And I'm not here to let my personal feelings get in the way to try to understand why we met. So at this stage in my life, I'm more open to engage people. I pass no judgment on nobody unless you come after me and I have to come after you. You know what I mean? Because people judge me because I was an officer before. So and I've, I've been attacked based off that before. So I don't I don't appreciate that because you don't really know me. You know, so, yeah, because a lot of people just look at you as an officer as the enemy and they don't know the type of person you were during your time. So I say that to say that I try not to pass judgment to nobody right now. I'm open. I feel that, again, we met on a reason and there's a reason why people think the way they do and we need to have these conversations to understand why people feel the way they do. And it is my hopes that through certain conversations we could change how people feel. How do you think people's trauma goes into that that realization? How does, how does, people, how does understanding people's trauma affect make you maybe not judge them? How does that work for you? Because I realize that everybody has tra trauma. I mean, I have my personal trauma in my life, you know what I mean? And I realize that um, everybody's, you know, they deal with it in just certain ways, you know, because I mean, I went to all Catholic school. I remember a lot of racism coming up back in the 1970s, and I could have let that impact how I feel about life, but I didn't. I realized that there were certain situations that took place in the surreality. You know, and I embraced it for what it was, you know, and I tried to deal with people as individuals rather than just uh, 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 put people in a particular box, you know, so trauma does play a role in a whole lot of things, you know, and I've implemented trauma on people, not understanding people, Southern Blacks back in the days I was in the military, you know, we, we didn't understand uh, the struggle that Southerners went through in the military during that day and time. We were Northerners. We felt that we were more educated. We felt that a lot of people from the South were a little backwards, but we did not understand the trauma in which they went through. You know what I mean? And and, and we could be insensitive at times. And, and I think about, you know, my, the arrogance of New Yorkers in the military, East Coast in, in, in particular, and how we view people from the South. And, and it wasn't right because we lacked understanding of the struggles in which they went through from day to day to the point where many of them left the South to go to the North. But, you know, sometimes we just didn't understand, you know, their dress, their speech, the things that they ate because we, we didn't have to go through those different struggles. So, like I said, at this stage in my life, I try to rewind a person's life. And I find in every conversation I have with people, there's trauma. I spoke to a Korean War veteran today, uh, 92 years old, and we spoke about the trauma that he went through uh, going in the military in the segregated, segregated South and not being able to eat in a restaurant. So here, this is a 92-year-old man, but we able to rewind and deal with trauma 
that impacted him as an artist later on in life. So I realized that practically everybody has experienced some form of trauma in their life. It could be bit, being bitten by a dog. It could be getting hit by a car. Everyone has experienced something. So I try to be empathetic to, to, towards what people have gone through that made them feel and think a certain way. I try to, again, be understanding and I hear everybody out. That's how you feel, I understand. It's a life lesson for me that, that to meet somebody that feels that way, that's why we met, because I needed to know that there's people like this that exist and you can't say anything that's gonna change that, but I accept it as a, a lesson and I move on. So everything for me is a life lesson. I wanna speak about your openness to people. Um, you know, I looked at some, I, I kind of dug a little bit about your, your influences and you, know, you got James Vanderzee, who, when I really looked at those photos, I mean, they're just, you're, you know, a lot, a, you know, a lot of I'm looking at these, and it's just it's your photos, but from the third, you know, from the from the what the 20s and 30s, a lot of the same the same poses. I mean, in, a, in the best way, like you're able to channel that in such an amazing way. That, you know, it's a connection to black past black history and then current. It's the same exact. Those people are the same in the photos, just decades apart. Um, and I know, like um, Roy DeCarva, am I pronouncing that name right? Yes, was a big influence. I know. And then I know, like, what's interesting to me is that also Leonard Freed. So you got these, like, you know, and I know um, Gordon Parks, and you got these, like, grandfathers of, like, black photography, and then this Jewish guy from New York. I appreciate the goodness of people, and, I, and I, 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 I'm drawn towards concerned photographers. There's, a, there's a, a massive list of photographers who've inspired me. There's a few blacks. There's a, there's, a, there's a wide range. It's across the color line. What I'm looking at is their heart and not their color. You know, what I admired about Leonard Free before I knew his color, when he did the book Black and White America, there was no photograph of Leonard Free. All it was is a name. I'm nine years old. I don't know, I don't know anything about the name. All I'm looking at is his work. And, and through his work, I see a concerned photographer. Through his writing, it introduced me to a world I didn't know about. It was later on in life, you know, that I would find out that he was a Jewish photographer and I would meet his wife, his wife. Bridget, we she's German. We develop a great friendship. Then come to find out, I lived in the same neighborhood as Leonard Free. The same neighborhood I documented in the 1980s, he documented in the 1960s. Or the same high school I went to in the 1970s, he went to that same high school in the 1950s. So there was a parallel there, and and I'm not ashamed to say that his work was the foundation of my photography. You know, besides my father's photography, before I met Gordon Parks and and, and Roy D. Carava. I, 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 it was that one book that I had on my father's coffee table I never talked about. So it wasn't about color, it was about content. And that was very important to me with photographers to this very day. You know what I mean? I'm not looking at the color of, of any photographer. I wanna look at what you produce. That's what's important. I think it feels tricky to me sometimes. Some people consider that co-opting someone else's culture. To me, it's, it's including everybody. I'm a teacher, like, you know, when I work with kids of color, I'm gonna teach them their own history. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna teach my history. I'm not gonna teach them about European Ju Judaism. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, you know, people feel like it's not your place for that. And I feel like there are sometimes, to be honest, when there are certain communities at certain times that I don't go in. I, I don't know. I, I'm at a point now where I document all cultures. I'm not limited. I don't think that black photographers should just be limited to shooting the black community. You know what I mean? And, and, and others cannot. I think that, it, it, it's where your heart is at. You know, there's a woman that I that I put in an exhibition that I curated through Photoville not too long ago, Amy Toussaint, and she documented Bed-Stuy. And she's a white woman. And, and, I, and I feel her heart. She's a sincere woman. And I wanted diverse voices to be a part of this exhibition on Brooklyn. And there was some people, there was a debate behind the fact that she did it. And it's like, what right do you have to tell this woman that she can't do this right here? It's one thing if she doesn't exploit the community, but she did it with sincerity because she has an empathetic heart 
and she just saw the beauty of the community. So I wouldn't want somebody to sit back and tell me if I was photographing the Italian community that you can't do this right here. You know, we, we shouldn't put those limitations on anybody. Just don't exploit. That, that's my whole situation because people can go in there and see the worst part and document that. And I've seen that before, things that I would not photograph because, you know, as, as I shared in, in my past interviews, that I look for that joy, the love, the compassion. I don't want to show the negative stereotypes, you know, and they do exist. And even if I do document that, because I documented prostitution, you would never know it's prostitution unless I told you, because I shoot it in a way in which you still see a degree of dignity is there. And there's others that might go and really exploit it and show the worst part of it. And we have enough of that already. And, and I don't want to participate in that with any culture. I mean, because one of the things I do now, through going to a lot of parades, I document diverse communities I, and I photograph them all in a similar way. You know, everything is done with, with, with honor and dignity, regardless to what culture you come from. But, you know, I, I photograph everybody similar. You pay attention to balance. Do you feel like that is also part of your personality, this balance of light and dark? It definitely is, because I need that balance. Because, you know, looking at documenting the pain and the suffering can really weigh heavy on you. So I find that, you know, I'm drawing towards the innocence of children in my work practice. And I need that. I need to feel the hope and possibility and see the innocence because seeing so much violence and negativity all my life, it, it weighs down on me, especially again, working in the jail. You know, you, you're around that, that negativity all day long and it could really weigh on you. So I would leave the jail and look for hope. I look for love. I look for for for, for peace, inner peace, and it, 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 it's a uh, it's captured in a lot of my images, and I need that. And that was my balance. Then I go back to work and photograph the hardships of it. I go shoot the Bowery, the despair, the pain. But I would have to always that that fifty fifty balance was always there. And my work, when I look at my negatives, it's really apparent in my negatives and context sheets that it's a it's an even split between two because the the pain and suffering is a reality, and the joy and love. And family's a reality too. So I just try to capture the whole of society. It's just a matter of what I show to the world because it's, it's still a part of, of my journey that I feel the need to document. Do you feel like being a sensitive person is why is why you do that? Yeah, I think that comes from my, my mother because my mother was a nurse. So I think that I learned empathy and, 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 and being somewhat sensitive to issues based off her. And then the suffering that I saw early on in my life, you know, as a child, you know, I saw a lot of suffering and brutality. And I think that, you know, it, it just did something to me. And, you know, again, I, I was impacted by the war in Vietnam in, in, in a lot of ways. So, you know, I was very sensitive to, to a lot of hate and violence and, and, and things of that nature, even crime. You know, so I realized that I have to use my camera like Gordon spoke about as a weapon to combat the things I didn't like. So I try to use my platform to address things in hopes that, you know, using this global language photography, it could just bring some insight to make the world and the community a better place. How much kindness do you feel like is part of your process? Today, it, it, it's, it's a major part of my work in terms of because it's about giving now. I'm in a position to give, you know, to support charities, to mentor, you know, to uh, uh, facilitate workshops and just to do different programs. I got to give back. And it's about being kind. We live in a world that's very wicked and mean-spirited. I can't be that way, you know what I mean? And sometimes people challenge you where, you know, you, you, you fight to, to not be that way, but I have to be that way. You know, I have to be a, a good-hearted person. You know, I believe in doing good deeds and I believe that if you do them, you're rewarded. So every day of my life, I strive to bring some type of good in the world. You know, people, people reach out to me every day from all over the world and I take time to respond to them because I feel that, you know, 
maybe I could say something that can change it. I mean, I can't believe the amount of uh, uh, messages I receive daily. So I take time to acknowledge as many people as I can. And I just believe that it, it, it's about being kind because it was a time in my life I wasn't so kind. So to me, this gives me an opportunity to, 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 to make up for some of the missteps that I made, you know, in, in my youth. I'm, I'm, I'm at peace in my life right now. I've been married over 30 years. I have a really good wife in my life who helps balance things out. So I welcome trying to help as many people as I can. And almost everybody I speak to is, is opening up and telling me some degree of trauma in which they, they've gone through. So I feel at this stage of my life of maturity that I'm here to try to help guide you. Even if it's just a matter of orphan and listening ear, I'm here to, to guide you to the very best of my ability, you know, to, you know, to help you understand that you're not alone. I mean, I've dealt with, with you know, recently a god daughter that was raped and committed wanted to commit suicide. Uh, a, a, a young man that had fallen victim to drugs really heavily. And I and I feel that my purpose in life is to try to be a light to help a lot of these people. So I welcome that. I hear everybody out. And in and, and, and all of my conversations, like I said, people are dealing with some type of trauma that we never got help for. Within the black community, it's not like we go to psychiatrists. You know, we could talk about our trauma. We hold it in. And in many cases, we self-medicate through drugs and alcohol because we have no outlet. Having worked in mental health for so many years, I understand that I could play a role to help guide you, even if it's a matter of listening or even encouraging you to pick up the camera and use the camera as a form to help you deal with your therapy, to go out to the ocean. I'm here to help you. And I take a lot of it in, but I'm all right with that right now. You know, and I take it in in certain degrees because I limit myself to maybe speaking about three people a day, but everybody is dealing with some form of trauma, especially since the COVID, COVID hit because so many people have died. I, I, I've lost well over 80 people since 2019, and um, and I, I I know a lot, and I know the children now. So the children reached out saying, "Well, you took a picture of my father," and I'm helping a lot of children cope with with loss of, of parents. I'm ha having helping parents deal with the the loss of their their sons. I have a good friend whose son got murdered two years ago, so I'm dealing with him on a regular. And he's he's trying to figure it all out. So I embrace it and I welcome that because that's one of my, that's my purpose in life to try to be a guide and a friend. As a Jew say, that's a mitzvah. That's a good deed. That's is there that, that not that you'd, you'd be considered a mensch. You know what a mensch is? Okay. Mensch no, is I'm a not. good someone who chooses chooses to be to do good in the world no matter what. I have to be that way. You know, I, I feel that it's important for me to be that type of person right now because, like I said, it was a point in my life where I wasn't a good person. You know, I had to go through different situations to understand my my higher calling in life. And I have to say, I met these, and I speak about this often in a lot of my interviews about these two young Hasidic boys that I met on the back of a bus one day. And um, and I saw them, and I said, let me just engage them in conversation. I really regret not taking a photograph. And I had asked them, what do you guys want to be in life? Doctors, lawyers, teachers? And they said to me, anybody could be a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher. We want to be messengers of God. And that stayed with me. I thought that was so profound that these young boys at that young age had a, a mission that they wanted to fulfill and this is who they wanted to be so i took that as a life lesson that i wanted to be a light in this world and i want to use my various platforms to just bring some type of hope using this global language of photography and i feel that we need it right now because there's a lot of negativity out there you know i have a lot of friends that have engaged in certain lifestyles i'm trying to help them overcome that you know what i mean because i came up again during the 80s it was a very difficult time and there's a lot of bloodshed and my books uh, allow me to see just how bad things were, you know, because I speak to people who 
had a lot of hatred towards people in my photo album. So I'm trying to change that and say, you know, when we look at it in retrospect, it wasn't worth it. Because I always want, I was always that person that was in the middle. You know what I mean? I, I knew the enemies of each other. You know what I mean? I photographed guys that were at war with each other. And I might spend the afternoon with one group of guys and the evening with the other group of guys. And they were arch enemies to each other. I always wanted to be the mediator, the peacemaker, to say that there has to be a better way. You know, because, you know, I was once lost and luckily for me, somebody guided me on a better path because I was on a path of self-destruction and I was asked just to be a light and bring good into the world. And I, and I aspire to do that every day. I want people to think, even in my social media posts, I try to post things that, 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 that might inspire kindness, that inspire a little bit more empathy, even if it's towards animals, humanity. I want people to think, you know, so I feel that it's my purpose. I love the one you wrote about the, your friend that you were in a band with. It was you were talking about how you played bass with him and been in a band. Most of the guys I grew up with, their younger brothers got murdered, you know. And it's, it's, it's and I knew all of the younger brothers. They all happened to get murdered, and I grew up and I, I tried to inspire them, but um, they went in another direction. So um, it, it's just a really deep thing when I when I just think about my journey. All these young kids that got murdered early on that I knew, and I was trying to kind of like rescue from that world, but I I, I couldn't. I couldn't really reach a lot of them. So uh, when I think about the band, I just can't help to think about three of my close friends that, you know, they were close friends to my, you know, their little brothers were, were friends with my little brother. And sadly, each one of them got murdered. And more than likely, they got, they got murdered by somebody that I knew. You know, so I came home to a lot of that. It's like, this has to stop. Somebody has to speak up and address these issues. And a lot of people weren't willing to do it. I was willing to do it. Most individuals were thinking about revenge. I was trying to come upon what created this situation. You know, this envy, this jealousy, this self-hatred. That's where I was always at. So most people know me to be a peacemaker, you know, because I, I didn't care for the war. It was easy to go to war and, and, and participate in revenge, but I wanted no part of it. And that's why I decided that the camera was my weapon of choice because the guns were readily available, but I couldn't participate in that. Yeah, and I see you as a preacher with a camera who's doing God's work, in my opinion. It's funny, maybe that's where photography comes in. People can, I always feel like when you take a picture of someone, they can see themselves like you see them in goodness that they can't see in themselves. And that's the point. Even bad people, you know, you photograph them and you see the, their beauty inside, you know. You let them know, I recognize that light inside you. Even though you may not feel that way, I see it in you. And that's one of the things I like about my type of photography, the engagement that I approach you and say, I, I could tell you got a good spirit. You got a good heart. You know, I'm not telling them, you know, you know, you look fly. I can say that too, but I can tell you got a good heart. And a lot of people weren't told that. To tell even to tell a woman that, you know, you know, you know, you're beautiful. You know, you have a beautiful spirit. Just to impart that to let people know I recognize you, despite what other might people might have said to you. You know, to try to belittle you. I'm letting you know that I recognize your your beauty. And sometimes we need to we need to be told that. And I feel that as a photographer, I, I have an opportunity to approach strangers. And let them know that I see their beauty. It's like I said, it's easy to say the, the physical beauty, but when I look at the inner beauty, the way that you walk, you know, the, the way that you, 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 your whole aura, and that's what I'm looking at. And, and in a lot of cases, it's really that. It's your aura that I'm picking up on, your, your positive vibration. And when you say that, it, it, it kind of gives a person that encouragement to continue on, especially if they're going through struggle. You know, because most people are not going to see that side of you. We might just judge people strictly for the physical, but I try to look at the inner beauty within a person. We're putting out a certain kind of vibration or energy that someone else is. And the only time I've ever met people that I was supposed to was doing some kind of art or music or something in the arts. 
And I think, I really do feel like there's a way that our souls connect with each other and that's how we connect. Do you, what do you think about that? I, I agree with that. It, it is about a frequency, you know, to, to, to be on a similar frequency as a person. And that's when you get that kind of like balance. And I'm on a really unique frequency because I listen to certain music. I used to travel the streets. You know, I'm listening to the to Marvin Gaye, and I'm on a frequency. And and I would meet people that would be on a similar one, and we're able to connect and build. So that's that's really important because if we're on two different frequencies, there's going to be conflict. So I always try to find somebody that we have that that we have that 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 connection with one another, which is very important. That's why I say you have a really good vibration with yourself, and that allows us to connect, even on social media. I could look at different frequencies that people are on and know that I could forge a connection with them. So it's very important for me to approach people because, you know, sometimes you could tell a person, with, even with that karma, that, 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 that bad karma, that that's not a good person to photograph. I could feel your energy to know that I can't photograph this person. I'm just looking at, you know, it, it's like that, that intuition that you just know this is a person, right? You just know. You study a person and you could just tell. And there's others that I, that I might even test myself and ask them, I tried to approach them, they just told me no. And I, I knew it in the beginning because I knew that the frequency wasn't right. But I said, let me just try anyway, knowing that nine out of 10 times the person's gonna tell me no. So I always look to be on the same frequency with a, with a person. And that's the key, you know, where, where we meet on a certain level where we could communicate. And, and that's, I think is the key to my success for the type of photography I do. You know, and, and in most cases, people do agree with me because we get on the same frequency. And I think that in terms, I mean, you complimented me before about my approach. I think that is my approach is I, I look at someone, if they're not responsive, I don't ask. I, I, I kind of, I, I trust my gut to see if I should be asking or taking this picture of someone or not, or not. I think about people in terms of people who should take photos. And I feel like there's kind of two different schools and there's people that either will just shoot or they will ask. And then there's people that will have a planned activity to take photos or people that just kind of go. Mine, mine is a combination, you know, when I step out my door, I, I, there's certain things, themes I'm already looking to document already in, in my mind. I look for twins. I look for the love. I look for the friendship. I look for military veterans. So I'm always already, I already know when I see the father and his son, that's, that's something I want. So yeah, so I'm, I'm clear on that. And then at the same time, I just let things flow. Whatever happens, happens. It's, it's meant to happen. You know, those spontaneous moments where I just happen upon a situation and it's there and I document. So it, it's a balance between the two, spontaneous moments and intentional moments. Like I said, within my mind, is I got at least 10 things when I step out my door and I'm looking to fill those gaps, you know, whenever I'm out there. Like I said, I'm looking for all of that, you know, so I'm clear and I'm always observing. I'm always curious, you know, just looking to see what, what am I going to see? And then I find new discoveries. There's things that I, I, was, I wasn't even anticipating. I come upon and I document. But I always have a clear vision when I step out my door that I'm going to definitely see something. I just got to keep my third eye open and be very observant and open for whatever comes my way. Do you feel like there's a certain spiritual aspect? I think that it is spiritual for the, for the most part, you know, because a lot of what I what I deal with is based on spirit, spirit, spirituality. You know, I take time. I meditate before I go out. I try to put myself into a certain zone and I, I step out with intention, you know, to learn, you know. So, you know, whatever I experience this day is, is going to help me in life. You know, whoever I meet today is meant to be, you know, so let me let me embrace, you know, whatever experience I have, however good or bad as a life lesson that I need to go through in order to help me better understand my mission in life. So a lot of it is based off, off my spiritual journey. I was greatly inspired by the book, The Alchemist. So I, I travel with intentions and I realized, like I said, that everybody is for a reason. 
you know, and if I if I'm on the train and somebody sits next to me, I felt that it's for a reason. I don't know why, but you know, I might spark up a conversation and and, and come to find out this is why we met. I didn't understand in the beginning, but this is exactly why we met each other. If I miss my train for some reason, and then then I I, I said to myself, I missed it for a reason. That means that more than likely the next train this comes, I'm gonna meet somebody that I need to see. Well, I'm going to see something I need to see. And a lot of my photographs have been that way. I might be walking and my subconscious mind might tell me to go left instead of right. And then I go right and I'm seeing something I need to see. So I, I, I base a lot of intuition and, and spirituality. Photograph for the man and dog, you know, just walking on the Lancy Street in a, on a rainy day. And, you know, I see this man about to swing his dog and I... I I freeze this moment in time, knowing it's going to be an important photograph, but not realizing that some 45 years later, I would have a dog just like that and a relationship just like that. You know what I mean? So I didn't know at that point how relevant this important photograph would mean to me. You know, that, that was so special that my father appreciated because that's when I really first started photography. But now looking at that iconic photograph, that's symbolic to me and my dog. To me, it's putting into practice Everything that my father taught me about photography, understanding light and speed, having my camera out everywhere I go and freezing that moment. And then, like I said, to find out later on why that happened and look at the fact that I have a relationship right now with my dog like that and where that dog came from and the science behind me getting this dog. It's an even deeper story that I would never have imagined back when I first made that image, how that would relate to my life so, so many decades later on. But there's, there's countless stories that I have like that, you know, of, of people that were incarcerated, you know, my uh, meeting Gil Scott Heron in, in, in a jail cell, you know what I mean? And how that pained me, how, you know, his music inspired me when I was on a, a boat, almost gonna die, got caught up in a really bad storm. And it was his music, Rivers of My Father, that helped me get through that very challenging time being caught in this, in this horrible storm at sea. And then I was in jail and I got word that Gil Scott Heron was, was, was incarcerated. And, you know, I, was, I went down to where he was at and he was a broken man. And this is a man whose music was so instrumental in my understanding of life. And here my hero was laying down on a bench broken. And that was very devastating to me to see him in that state. And uh, I had a lot of situations like, like that in jail where I see people that I, I saw people I knew personally that were broken behind, you know, drugs. And, and, and so that stayed with me. Those are some of my most memorable, painful moments. People trying to avoid me. Guys that were once clean and, 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 and uh, uh, you know, ladies, men, and now crack just destroyed them. They would see me and they felt so ashamed. They would try to hide from me, you know, but I, I never judged them behind that. So I, I saw a lot of pain and misery. You know, but there's just so many incidents that I've encountered throughout my life that are memorable that I needed to see, you know, from just so many. I had a question about another image of yours. 159 Pioneer Street, I think it's the name of it. It looks like it might be like a subway stop. There's no standing any time. Oh, right, 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 right. That's a very important photograph. You had considered this a self-portrait. Of course, first of all, the picture was taken in the Red Hook section of Brooklyn, you know, and that street, Columbia Street, is a, cre a, a street that I crossed at the same age as that young boy. And that street would take me to the Gowanus Canal, which was a gateway to a larger world. That park that he's looking at, you know, uh, Columbia, uh, excuse me, uh, Lorraine Street is a park that I played in often. And I have photographs that my father took of me in that very same park, right across from those projects is where I lived at. So when I look at that sign, no standing anytime, that's one image I wish I photographed in color because you have the American flag on one side, you have the Marcus Garvey flag on the other side, you have the sign, no standing anytime. So that image is symbolic to me 
and my 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 uh, curiosity at around that same age to try to understand a larger world that was transpiring. The photograph was made in 1995, but in 1965, when I was about the same age as that young boy, I, I, my mind was very curious. The war in Vietnam was going on, and through that main avenue, a lot of the soldiers were coming home from Vietnam. So I saw a lot of activity. My parents traveled that street a lot. So that's just symbolic to me, standing in the crossroads of being a young black child in America during the 1960s, trying to navigate through life and understand everything that's going on in America and no one is really telling me. You know, so when I look at that photograph, I think about that. And again, the Gowanus Canal, which was the place in which I went to around that same age, looking at a, at a gateway to a larger world. So that, that picture just represents me starting my, 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 my journey as a young child of self-discovery through photography. That photo to me, in terms of my understanding, it looks like it's a tribute. I can read that as a tribute to Gordon Parks' work. What, what, did, he mean, what did he mean to you? Gordon Park, Parks was really the torchbearer that paved the way for my generation and so many others. You know, I learned about Gordon Parks probably in the mid-1980s as a photographer. As you shared, I first learned about Gordon Parks, you know, through his son's book, G.I. Diary, in 1978. And it's pretty much his son's account of his experience in Vietnam. And what's very interesting about that, my father was writing me when I was in the Army. So I drew that parallel between David Parks and his father, Gordon. So that was very interesting. What I found about Gordon's journey, you know, growing up in Fort Scott, Kansas, is just the racism, the poverty that he went through early on in life. You know, trying to navigate, you know, at a young age, having these kids try to drown him in a, in a, in a water, uh, you know, in, in, in a river. And the hardships that he went through when his mother died and he, he went to St. Paul. And, you know, despite all these hardships, he was able to persevere. I mean, he had a hell of a life because I thought about my life coming of age. But when I started looking at what Gordon went through, you know, the racism and, you know, then you go to your sister's house in the dead of the winter and a husband throws you out during, you know, in, in, in St. Paul when it's, it's, it's sub-zero weather out there. And now you got to navigate. And what I found was compelling. He was so hungry. You know, it was a dog on the street. And he's on the street, both hungry. They see a pigeon, and they both trying to get the pigeon at the same time because they were starving. And Gordon fought off the door, got the pigeon. I mean, he was a country boy. He ate it to survive, you know, and, and just surviving and not, you know, dropping out of high school. But despite that, he met people on the path of life that saw the good in him and put him on a path and helped him to guide and, and develop. And I mirrored that to my life, you know, despite the hardships in which I've gone through. I met a whole lot of good people on this path of life that encouraged me, you know, that, that gave me, uh, that were there in my corner and pointed me in the direction. And I admire that within Gordon, the fact that this is a man that didn't finish school, but yet he was a true Renaissance man. He taught himself so many different things and he did it so well. And, and I really admire that about him and his humility. You know, I met him on, on two occasions in my life and had an opportunity to really get to know him more through his great niece who brought me back to uh, uh, St. Paul and I was able to walk in his footsteps and see his, the house that he grew up in and learn more about this man. But what he showed me as a photographer was in his book, Half Past Autumn, was how to navigate through this, through this very complicated industry. And that one book showed me the various layers of photography from documentary, fashion, street, and fine art. So when I studied that one book, that was my roadmap to start my own photographic journey. So I said, I'm gonna do everything that Gordon did. He did fine art, he did fashion, he did documentary, he photographed icons, you know what I mean? He did all of that and, and that, I said, I'm gonna do that. 
Gordon's going to exhibit work in institutions, and I'm going to do the same thing. So he helped me to see the importance of, of, of documenting, you know, uh, uh, using photography in various ways. He helped me to understand that the camera was, that, in fact, a weapon that could be used to fight different things that I didn't like. So I had a problem with pollution and hatred and violence. So I tried to use my camera to showcase those different situations. So he was that, that, that torchlight, once again, that illuminated a path for me to better understand how I could use photography beyond just making beautiful images, but now using photography as a global language to travel to different places, showcase my work, speak about it, encourage another generation, and more importantly, to give back. Because one of the things that Gordon was very concerned with was the future of youth in this country, particularly black youth. You know, he saw the suffering they were going through and he used to mentor a lot of them. He used to teach inside the prisons, trying to encourage young people. So he showed me that you could use the camera as that weapon. Like I said, you could have a career, but you got to give back. I don't totally understand the book yet. It's called, it's your album book. Is it literally just your photo albums? Because to me, that is so exciting. What it is, is that um, Steidl came up with this idea in the Gordon Parks Foundation to look at my photo albums because they were fascinated with the fact that I carried albums around for so many years. So Macau, you know, um, Russo, she had this unique vision to revisit my photo albums, the original photo albums and scan them into a book. So she took approximately 12 photo albums, 12 unique photo albums that I carried around from the 1970s to the 1990s and, and, and consolidated them into one book. And they're different albums, some are horizontal, vertical, different shapes and forms. It's a series of 12 albums condensed into one book. And what she's showing too is my creative process, my curation of these albums. Of course, it just it wasn't about just putting random photos in an album. The albums were strategically done. You know, the images was placed in there for a reason. And that's something I learned from my father because my father was, was a stickler when it came down to putting photo albums together. He showed me how to do them. So some of the earlier workers, even some of his photographs, his photo albums and his, his original pictures that he took. So her idea was to show that these were some of the original photo albums that I carried around and I used them to engage young people back in the day. So it's a very unique book, one of a kind, and I'm really happy with the direction of it and the writers that, that participated to, to, to give it even more light. And, uh, and I'm really excited behind it coming out. It's over 300 pages. It's well over a thousand people in the book. It feels full circle to me in your life. That's the first experience of photography you had was your family's album. The few questions I have, it seems like your archive, you talked about how it feels like it's, you know, during pandemic, it feels like it's developing for you. You're kind of, you know, going with the archive is almost like, de almost like developing your photos. When were you aware that you were building an archive? Is that something that you understood early on? Is that something that you just realized? Did you, have you thought about that before? I think I thought about it in the 1990s when my father died and a lot of his archive got lost. And I had an uncle who was in World War II and his archive got lost, you know, his because his wife didn't know what to do. She, you know, she, you know, she was kind of mean-spirited and didn't want to pass it on me. He didn't have any children. So I understood that this work was very vital, you know, especially when people were dying. A lot of times the photo albums go to the curb. And I never want that to happen with me. I wanted my legacy to be preserved. But more important, I felt that I was really contributing to the preservation world history and culture. And the work I was doing was important. And it needs to be in institutions and museums around the world because I want my community to be remembered. And I felt that I had a responsibility. And my these might be personal photographs, but at the end of the day, they really belong to the community. And I felt that this is my way of making sure that our history is being known. So I think that COVID really allowed me the time 
you know, when COVID hit to now have time to stop and revisit my work. And at the same time, I needed to scan images for my own therapy, you know, for therapy, because with so much death that was happening, being locked in and uncertainty, now I have an opportunity to scan my negatives and relive moments in my life when things were different. You know what I mean? And when I scan and I'm uncovering images I forgot all about, it brought me so much joy. Because when COVID first hit, there was a lot of death going on, a lot of uncertainty, uh, a lot of fear. So I, now I'm home. All my traveling ceased because I've been traveling for about maybe 30 years constantly. Now I'm in a position to stop and look at my work. And it brought me so much happiness. It brought smiles on my face. And what's more importantly, I was able to find so many images of my friends and share them on social media. And it made them feel good. It brought a lot of joy in their lives because they were also feeling depressed and uncertain. So when I started to scan the images and, and, and share them with them, it brought so much joy in their lives. And now I have an even greater platform to share this work and balance things out because people were seeing obituaries and, and uncertainty. And now I, I was I was posting really, when, when COVID hit, I was on a mission on social media. I was constantly posting photo because I know people needed to see this here. I was getting people writing me back saying that your work makes my heart smile from around the world. So I knew I was doing important work by scanning these images. It was, it was bigger than me. And with a number of my friends dying now, I was able to, to pass on the photographs to the children, to the loved ones, and it gave them a sense of closure or in addition to help them to better understand who their loved ones were from my perspective. So uh, it, it, it was something that I really needed to do because it allowed me to just go back into time, to time travel and to better understand my mission, why I froze these moments in time. I didn't quite understand it when I did it, but now as I'm going through the negatives, I was looking at the sequence of events that took place that allowed me to capture these moments. And, uh, and I thought that was incredible. And what was interesting too was not only the scanning of the negatives, but what my professor in college taught me early on the importance of keeping a journal. So I, I, I got all my, gathered up my journals from the eighties and nineties, I was revisiting them. So it did a lot for me spiritually. It helped me understand that my journey in life was well worth it. And, and, and um, it, it was a good thing and I'm still doing it right now. And I'm, I, I have thousands upon thousands of negatives and slides that I haven't even tapped into yet. So the rest of my life now, it's like, I don't really desire to do any more photography at this point, to be honest with you. At this stage in my life at 62, all I want to do now is scan, produce more books, but I don't have to take any more photographs anymore because I have an abundance of work. I even have film in my refrigerator that I, that I, um, uh, haven't got processed yet so i can't wait to eventually process that film so i have memories that will last me for a lifetime and, and i absolutely love scanning my negatives now and time traveling back into a different time and place the last question i have is do you see yourself as a collector do you see when you're going shooting are you kind of collecting stories are you collecting people i i guess a collector is a really interesting statement because i do collect art now i collect other people's artwork to include in my archive right now. And I've been doing that for a long time. I collect art and I collect photographs. I'm collecting from a lot of the young artists right now, but I'm a researcher, you know what I mean? And I think that I'm an explorer and all of this is research for me. It's just my journey. This is the this is, this is is really for my children to see. This is through, through your father. This is what your father has seen in his lifetime. Because as I go through my father's negatives, I'm able to revisit his journey in life and see the different things in his life that he saw that inspired him to freeze this particular moment in life. So for those people that know me, my work serves as a visual journey 
of my experience and different people I met throughout my life. And I shared the work with my wife and she's blown away with all the thousands upon thousands of people I've met. I'm even astonished when I revisit my photo albums and slides and look at all of the people in which I met, just like with your work. I mean, I'm talking about people who I had conversation with. I'm able to look at these photographs and remember vividly the conversations I had with so many people which I photographed. So I, to me, it's, it's all a visual diary of my life. And now I have a memory. Unlike, like I said, a lot of my father's work was lost. So I'm glad I have a little bit of his work. But for me personally, I have a massive visual diary of my entire experience, you know, and, and I think that's the beautiful thing for my children to, to if, when I'm going, they can go back into my journey. I will always live through my work. You know, when I thought of your archive, this would be a great history book. I think with the new book is really that because I, I often speak about the book of Eli, the movie, and how that really encouraged me. And I think that with the new book, really all of my books are like that. All of my books, for the most part, deal with time, you know. But with this new book right now, I believe it will be that textbook. But it's a very interesting story, and especially coming from the perspective of the scholars that wrote it, those who researched me to really break things down. And I feel that this book, unlike my other books, which are considered fashion books, hip-hop books, this one is a little bit different. This is a story of, of a young man that came of age in the 1960s, because I always want people to know I am a product of the 1960s. I was shaped and molded by that particular era. And this is what one book, Black and White America, did for me. It put me on this path that allowed me to document just these few, these couple of decades, because the new book is really just the 70s, the 80s, and a little bit of the 90s, but there's so much more to my work. So it's volume one of my journey. And to me, it, it's really a history book for uh, uh, for generations to get a glimpse at what, what was going on from perspective, a very unique perspective, because a lot of what I documented, the average person wasn't able to go in, in those spaces. So now I'm able to show them how life was before crack, before uh, uh, AIDS, before COVID. A very different New York that's now frozen in time forever. And it's, it's really interesting, too, because when I look back at the, the work that I'm best known for, I was in my early 20s. And I, I'm really, when I think about that now, some of my most iconic images I was like a young guy, you know, just came home from the military, you know, so a lot of my work that I've done as I've gotten older hasn't, hasn't even been shown yet because I've matured a lot. And you see that work that's done in the late 90s to the 2000s, it's on a whole nother level. But, you know, some of my most important iconic work, I was just, for the most part, I was about maybe 23 years old. So I was very young at that point. And I, I would never imagine that, you know, you know, that that work at that young stage would have so much importance today. I, I would have never imagined, because again, I, I did it for myself. I wasn't trying to be a photographer back then. This is just having a camera to document my life and never to be without memories. It wasn't until really the early 2000s that I decided that I could do this full time as a photographer. All right, Jamal, you have a great night, man. Likewise, thank you for everything. Take care, man. Okay, now. Bye-bye. Hey, I just want to thank you for listening to this episode. I'm really hoping you got a lot out of it. Um, again, I highly recommend all the books that we speak about. They're all listed when you go to the body of the podcast episode, where to get them, what they cost. I, I really highly recommend um, learning about both of these photographers. has been really meaningful to me, and I, <clears throat> I recommend you dig into their work. So thanks again. Please check out our website, finnujanelsarchive.com. We have a ton of uh, content there. We have an Instagram and we have a Patreon. I do this all entirely voluntary, and it's nice to get some support. So if you're able to donate a few bucks, go to our Patreon. It's patreon.com, Vigit Annals Archive. Any support you can give would be really appreciated so we can do more 
more things like this. Thanks again. Uh, have a great day.